0: Illustrations, illustrations. Every good teacher has illustrations, don't they? Every good teacher has a good illustrator. And interestingly enough, as we were seeing from Mike Wade even today in his presentation, illustrations by their very nature are somewhat constrained by time. They're somewhat constrained by culture. They're somewhat constrained by whether or not people that you're giving the illustration to can understand it based on their life. If I was speaking this morning uh, in a church in the Midwest, I would use illustrations differently than what I would use here in California. Because in the Midwest, there's a different mindset. There's a different culture. There are different kinds of illustrations that would more accurately portray... What I'm trying to communicate. And as Mike was saying in his presentation today, which was excellent, Mike, it's exciting to see what you your team is doing over there. But Mike's team is using illustrations, finding new ways to communicate the same message of Jesus Christ to new cultures, to new people. And he's using anime, which is very famous in Japan these days. And they're using different methods, new ways to reach the culture. Usually when we think of illustrations, we think of something that is time-constrained, constrained constrained by culture. However, however, there is an illustration that we're going to see today in Philippians chapter 2. And this, in fact, the entire section of verses 6 to 11 in Philippians chapter 2, is an illustration. But this illustration is not constrained by time. This illustration is not constrained by culture. The Apostle Paul is going to bring out an illustration, and this time it's always universally going to be applicable to everyone that hears it. Let's read together our text today in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. I don't have a handout for you today because uh, the nature of an illustration is not to take notes on it. Uh, Actually, that that and part of the fact that my printer was having problems this morning. But, um, no, I want you to recognize that the entire scripture that we're looking at today is an illustration. You are not meant... To so much uh, r- write meticulous notes about it as you are to recognize it and apply it to your life. So take out the Bible in the pew in front of you or the Bible that you brought. Let's look at Second, or excuse me, Philippians two, verses five to eleven. Paul says this, writing to the church at Philippi. He says, "Let this mind be in you." Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, You, in Your Word, are giving us an illustration. You're giving us an example to follow. And Father, this example is the humility of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And that example, Lord, is universally true. It was true, it is true today, and it will be true tomorrow. Lord, as we continue to dive into this book and to recognize the unity and the humility which Paul so desperately desires to communicate to the Philippians, Lord, help us to grab hold of these themes, in particular humility today, Father. Help us to look at Jesus, who was the chief illustrator of humility. Be with us as we interpret. Lord, help us to remain humble as we approach the text of Your Word. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, Let's get into this, shall we? Let's start in verse 5. Good section of Scripture, an excellent section of Scripture. Verse 5, Paul begins by saying this. It's an imperative. It's a command. He's saying, Let this mind... Be in you, that's a plural, you, all the Philippians, all those in the church. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Which mind? Which mind? Well, we have to go back. Look at verses 2 to 4 here. As you look back, the mind that Paul is talking about is precisely what we spoke on last Sunday. That mind, the mind just verses earlier, the mind that he spent using similar phrases and similar terminology to communicate this understanding of unity undergirded by humility. Look at what he says about this mind in verse two. He says, fulfill my joy, fulfill my joy. How? By being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. That is humility. Esteem or consider others better than yourself. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let that mind, that mind be in you. Oh, and by the way, Paul says, that mind was also Most chiefly in the mind of Jesus Christ. And so begins our illustration. Paul says that mind that I described in verses two to four, I want you to have it. I want you to own it. I want you to possess it. And let me show you who has done this to the nth degree. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Have this mind. It's a command. And you know, it's, it's important that we understand uh, verse 5 is actually setting an ethical tone. It's setting a tone of moral action. It's saying, I want you to do this, to have this mind, and Jesus is the illustration of this. So what we're going to see right after this in verses 6 to 11, while in our perhaps devotional readings of this next text, which is a very famous text, while we might devotionally read it as this great theology, this great doctrine of Jesus Christ, this great high grandiose language that Paul is using to describe what we would call Christology or the study of Jesus Christ, and it is that, but chiefly and principally, verses 6-11 to is his illustration. It's his call to humility. It's his call to moral action. It's his call to unite us and to have that unity undergirded by humility. It's an illustration. Don't lose sight of that because it's, it's going to be tough to go through this and not try to pick apart the doctrine, which we are going to do. But remember chiefly that this is an illustration. To spark our conduct. To spark our ethical conduct. Now Paul's going to go on and he's going to describe the mind of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at what he says. Verse 6. Who? Jesus. Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And in the New American Standard, you're going to notice the word although. Although. i put it in red here because it actually is not reflected in the the original Greek. Uh, The New American Standard includes the word although, and I I actually think they uh, misrepresent the text by including it because it gives you the impression that uh, Jesus, although God, um, that Jesus, though he was God, did not want to do something. And I don't think that's necessarily what Paul has in mind here. So keep in mind that word although is actually not in the text. Uh, The New American Standard includes it as somewhat of an interpretation for you. I'm saying uh, today that I think that that actually should not be included in this text. Now, verses 6 to 11, as we read through this, and as we're going to be going through this in just a moment, we're going to notice, again, some very grandiose language. We're going to be noticing some very beautiful imagery that Paul's going to use. He's going to talk in these large phrases that that speak of the the descent of Christ and the beauty of His exaltation, most scholars will argue that verses 6 to 11 is actually a hymn. A Christian hymn. One of the earliest Christian songs, if you will, or poems written by Paul or collectively by the early Christian community that they would say together, perhaps at a church service. There's a lot of good evidence for that, actually. Because this section is so unique to what Paul is writing here that it may have very well been something that the church collectively would say. Much like you and I, when we open up our hymnals, we might see a a reading of sorts. We do this as a collective reading, a, a show of unity, of camaraderie behind the truth of Jesus Christ. And this, in verse 6 to 11, is most likely that kind of a creed, that kind of a hymn, that kind of poetry. Okay, a face value reading. I want to look just very quickly at a face value reading of this and I want to bring out two impressions that that you might see, you might not. These aren't true. However, that you might get the impression that these were true by taking a a quick glance at verse 6. The first impression is this. A face value reading of verse 6. You might think that Jesus does not want to rob the Father of His glory. We're going to find out today that that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here. It's not that Jesus does not want to rob the Father of his glory. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Secondly, and this, some might see it, some might not. Um, I, I kind of, myself, am rather 50-50 on whether or not this occurs. But Jesus, therefore, not wanting to rob the Father of his glory, is somehow not equal to the Father. Now, that impression is also not the case, that he is somehow inferior to the Father. Now, again, this would be a casual reading of verse 6, and I want to say that these are impressions that are not true. And we're going to see why they're not true in just a moment. It would be very unfortunate, actually, to to take that impression away from verse 6. But verse 6 is critical, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 6 is critical to the entire interpretation of what we're looking at today. Let's look a little more closely at verse 6. Two words, being and form, being and form. I want you to have this mind. It was chiefly represented in the mind of Christ and Jesus, who being in the form of God. This idea of being has the idea of existing. Of existing. Existing in the form of God. And what about the word form? This has this is the Greek word for morph, morphe. Like we get uh, uh, morphological or to to. Uh, To have the very nature of, really, is what we're looking at here. Being in the form of God means to have the nature or to be in the nature of God. From the earliest understandings of this word morphe, we get the impression that this has to do with the deepest nature and characteristics of what it is that this thing is describing. In this case, we're describing Jesus Christ. So the deepest, at the most essential characteristic and nature of Jesus, He was God. That's what Paul's saying here. And He's using very poetic language to say that. But if we were to break it down very, very cleanly, He's saying Jesus, being truly God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Alright? That's the first section here. Jesus, being truly God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. By the way, that word consider, you might notice it back in uh, verse 3 of this chapter, where we are told to consider others better than ourselves. It's an esteeming. It's a calculation. It's weighing the facts and coming to a decision. Therefore, we could say Jesus, being truly God, weighed the facts and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Well, we've only come halfway through verse six, and this has been somewhat of the easier parts. Now we come to the phrase, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, this idea of robbery in the New American Standard, you'll see the word something to be grasped. Something to be grasped. This is is the crux, ladies and gentlemen. And this is what kept me up late at night all week. If I look a little tired today, it's because I have been racking my brain on this word robbery. And it's a tough word. you know why? It's only used once in all of Scripture. Paul's the only one that uses it. So, what happens when a word's only used once? Well, scholars have to go back And they have to try to find other Greek literature that describes what this word means. They have to go back and they have to look at at words that are akin to it, that are similar to it. And they need to try and, 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 and induct what is the meaning of this word because it's a very unique word of the New Testament, and it's very difficult to ascertain this meaning. I've given you the word in yellow there. It's actually a noun, okay? It's a noun, not a verb. And it's harpagmoth, which means robbery, or was translated robbery in the New King James, or something to be grasped in the New American Standard. I want to show you four other words here. Take a look at this. Okay, next one. There we go. Notice harpa, 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 harpa. Notice the similarities between these words. Okay? This is the process. If if I were to get very... You know, if I were to just lay it out for you, this is the process, how scholars do it. This is how they get the meaning of the word. They look at other words that have the same stem, that have the same beginning to the word, and they slowly reconstruct what Paul was saying here with this word at the very top. So look, look closely at them. We have harpage, Harpagma, harpazo, and harpax. Now, notice the definitions. There's something similar here, isn't there? There's something similar in all of these definitions. Uh, harpage, taking something by violence or greed. And, and uh, just really quickly, just so you know, uh, this word is used three times in the New Testament. Okay? The second word. Harpagma is used 18 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it could mean uh, prey or spoils or plunder. The next word, harpazo, this means to take by force, to take away. This is used three times by Paul and many other times in the New Testament. And the final word, harpax, harpax, also used three times by Paul, has the idea of... Grasping or being greedy or savagery. It's, a, it's an adjective. Okay. What do we see in common in all of this? I have come up uh, with a word and I've, as I've studied the commentaries and studied Greek dictionaries, if you will, um, I believe the best word we can come up with today for this noun that New King James translates as robbery is actually the idea of hoarding. Hoarding. The idea of hoarding means to stockpile, means to pull in, means to grab all you can. Somewhat, it has somewhat selfish connotations. It means to grab everything and cling to it and hold on to it. So, this idea of taking, accumulation, increasing, hoarding, which all five of these words carry that connotation. Now, I might liken it to a superhero. Okay, now we know uh, superheroes, they have, they have godlike powers, right? We watch Superman and he can fly, he has x-ray vision, uh, we watch the X-Men comics, uh, they came out with a new movie, I haven't seen the latest one, but, uh, and all these different mutants, they call them in X-Men, have various powers. You know, one guy's the pyro guy, is it pyro, Kevin? Is that the guy who's got the, uh, the fire thing? Who's an X-Men fan? Cyclops, I'm sorry, his name's Cyclops. I thought it was Pyro, you know. Cyclops can, you know, he's got fire coming out of his eyes and all this and that. Well, superheroes, by nature, possess these attributes, possess these qualities. But imagine, and this happens in movies, imagine when the superhero turns bad. What happens when the superhero turns bad? All of a sudden, that superhero begins to use his or her powers for themselves. They begin to hoard. They begin to collect and increase utilization of their powers for themselves. For themselves. And this, I would propose, is not, well, is a very imperfect illustration rather, but is not too far off from what Paul is getting at. He's saying Jesus, being truly God, was not of the persuasion that he needed to hoard, that he needed to collect that he needed to accumulate, that he needed to increase. Jesus, being truly God, did not consider a hoarding mindset. And we can include the word mindset there because it is a noun. So to have the mind of accumulation, to have the mind of increasing oneself, this, Paul says, was not the mind of Jesus. Jesus did not consider it robbery, hoarding, a hoarding interest. To be equal with God. Okay. I hope I haven't lost you. We're trying to work through this. We're trying to get a little bit of understanding here. Let me say this also. Based on the definition above, as I'm trying to help us understand what Paul means, I believe that Paul is telling us that Jesus did not consider his own divine nature as reason to carry out his own rightful campaign of increase and selfish hoarding. Let me say that again. Jesus did not consider His own divine nature as reason to carry out His own rightful campaign of increase and selfish hoarding. Instead, Jesus took pleasure not in taking what was rightfully His, not in taking, but Jesus took pleasure in giving to others what was not rightfully theirs. I'll say that again. Jesus was not interested in taking what was rightfully his. He was interested in giving up to others what was not rightfully theirs. Chiefly, our salvation through faith in Christ. He gave us a second chance at reconciliation with God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was not a taker. He was a giver. He was not a taker as he could have rightfully been. But he was a giver. To put it in plain language, as you see, Jesus being truly God did not consider a hoarding mindset to be equal with God. Now lastly, the final phrase, to be equal with God. Before we put this puzzle back together, we need to deal with this idea of equality here. What does Paul mean that he didn't consider a hoarding mindset to be equal with God? We might get the impression Again, from the translation in our New King James. That Paul is trying to convey the notion that Jesus in his humility never sought equality with the Father. That Jesus never sought equality with the Father. We might get that impression from verse 6 as we read it generally. Now, Scripture is clear that Jesus being God's Son does willingly submit to the Father in all things. Jesus voluntarily submits himself to the Father. That much is very clear in the Word of God. What is not as clear is the idea that Jesus is not equal to the Father. What is not clear is that Jesus was not equal to the Father. In fact, just the opposite is the case. Jesus is very often pictured as being equal to the Father in His very nature, in person, in attributes. In fact, on more than one occasion, we see the unbelieving Jews making an accusation And you know what their accusation is? They say, Jesus, we're accusing you of calling yourself equal with God. And you know what Jesus does? He sits in silence to their accusation. He doesn't return fire and say, no, no, that's not what I'm claiming. I submit to you the reason he does that is because he accepts the accusation. Take a look at these two verses in John 10. This is... Examples of Jesus accepting the idea that He is equal to the Father. John 1030 30-33. He says, I, Jesus speaking, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man... Make yourself God. A little more pointedly in the next one, I'd say. Therefore, the Jews in John 5, 18, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill Jesus because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself what? Equal. Equal. With God. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is equal with God, the father. That's what scripture attests to. That Jesus is equal to the Father. Though He voluntarily submits Himself to the Father, He is equal in person, in nature, in attributes to the Father. He is fully God. He is equal to the Father. So then when we go back and we see verse 6, what does Paul mean? What does Paul mean that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God? What does he mean? Is he contradicting himself? No. It seems unlikely. In fact, it is unlikely that Paul would dispute Jesus' claim to be equivalent with the Father in terms of his deity, person, and glory. Jesus did not dispute this claim. By his silence, he accepted their accusation, and rightly so, for Jesus is equal to the Father. Friends, verse 6, and this is critical. Verse 6, what we've spent a great amount of time on now, is not a matter of Jesus showing his humble inferiority before the Father. Quite the opposite is the case. It is a matter of Jesus being who God really is. Being in the form of God. Jesus being who God is. And then he completes the clause. Did not consider a hoarding mindset to be equal to, and I will add this, the nature of God. The nature of God. Now, how, how can we add this? Go back to the top. He began the clause by talking about the nature of God. The entire first verse begins, and in my opinion, ends, and will continue with the nature. The nature of God. Who God is. Therefore, Jesus, being truly God, recognized that God, by His very nature as God, is not a taker. He is not one of a hoarding mindset. He is instead a giver. He is a giver. And a taking mindset, a hoarding mindset, is not equal to the nature of the Father. Now, some of you may disagree with me on this. You might say, Neil, I don't know if you got this interpretation correct. That's okay. I labored over this for many, many hours. And I read many, many commentaries. And um, would I live and die on what I just said as the interpretation? Uh, I will honestly say no. I'm willing to be corrected on this. However, I believe that that hoarding mindset is a better translation of that word And secondly, I believe that the first part of the verse which speaks of nature and the last part of the verse should allude also to the nature of God. So let me say again, Jesus, being who God is, because He is God, was not a hoarder, was not a taker, for that, that mindset is not equal to the nature of God. But what was He? What was Jesus? Well, isn't it interesting? Look at the next verse and look at the word that is used in the next verse. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form, taking the nature of. Again, we're talking about the nature of who God is. We're not talking about Jesus and the Father competing to see who might be greater than the other. No. The case, what we're looking at here is Who God is. He's not a taker. He's a giver. He's not one who pulls everything in for himself. But no, no, no. He takes on the form of a servant. A slave. He puts himself of no reputation. He makes himself, rather, of no reputation. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form, the nature of a bondservant or of a slave. Moving on, it gets a lot easier from here. Whew. Okay, let's look at that word "emptied." But made himself of no reputation, which which the no reputation there. In other translations, you'll see it. He emptied himself. All right. This has the idea of to empty yourself, to void yourself, to 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 literally pour out yourself on behalf of someone else. This is not the idea of Jesus. And sometimes we like to speculate which attributes of God Jesus let aside as he became a man. That's actually not what Paul has in mind here. While we like to think of uh, this idea of kenosis, which means uh, any of you who uh, have any Catholic background, you'd know what kenosis is. It means self-emptying. It's based on the Greek word kanao, which means to empty yourself. And uh, Catholics esteem this idea of kenosis as as a very... um, high form of mimicking Jesus Christ. If you are practicing kenosis, you are a person who is constantly humbling yourself and emptying yourself in, in, in reverence to others and in, uh, in view of others. But this is not having to do with emptying his divine attributes. Paul says here that Jesus emptied himself. That is to say, Jesus poured himself out like a servant. Again, it's an illustration. And we can't lose sight of that. Verse 5 lets us know clearly. Let this mind, the mind of unity, of humility, which is chiefly evident in Christ Jesus, let that mind be in you, and it is a mind that is, is an emptying, is a process of kenosis, self-emptying, humility, being lowly in mind. Paul is consumed with the fact that Jesus, in all his heavenly glory and honor, emptied that glory, voided that glory. He gave it up and he did so willingly. And not only that, but he took upon himself an entirely new form. Look at this new form. This form was quite distinct from his pre-existence as the glorious Son of God in heaven. This was the form of a bondservant, a slave, taking the form of, Notice its correlation with verse six. The nature, the nature Paul is concerned with. He gave up the nature of his glory in heaven for the nature of a slave. And right there, we just need to pause. Now, we can blow through this and, and interpret all we want. And wow, I really learned what it meant, but you know, not not listen to what it said. Um, Jesus became a slave. That's what the text says. Let that sink in. Our Savior became a slave. There's no human illustration that does this justice. I could speak of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies who maybe at In a win's decision, decided to become the company janitor rather than the company CEO. That they all of a sudden give up all the glory and all the prestige as the owner, as the chief executive officer, and they go and clean toilets instead. Well, that's, that's pretty remarkable. I've never heard of that happening. But even that doesn't come close to what Jesus did. Our Savior, our Lord, the God of all the universe, came to earth as a slave. It's an illustration. Paul says, hey, if he did it, that's what we're supposed to do. If that's what Jesus did, that's what we're supposed to do. We too are to be bondservants. We too are to be slaves. Coming in the likeness of men... This, this does not diminish his humanity. This, this simply means that he came in the form or in the identity of a man. But it also kind of keeps him separate a little bit, I think, that this word likeness of man. It, it, it demonstrates that, yes, he was man, but that he was a distinct man. He came in the likeness of man. Of men. Verse 8. And being found in appearance, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled Himself, Jesus did, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humbled himself. Look again at verse three where it says lowliness of mind. That's the verb in verse eight and the noun in verse three. Same same word there. He humbled himself, just like we were we are to be lowly of mind. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it says, he humbled himself and became obedient. Now, this word obedient, uh, I, I surely would have liked to look at this a little more closely, and we will next week. This will come out in verse 12 for next week. And I really encourage you to be here, because next week is good stuff. This idea of obedience is that Christ did this to be obedient. Therefore, we should do it to be obedient. The title of my message today is, Know His Mind, to Mind Him. Know His mind. Know the mind of Christ. Know His humility. Know His abasement. Know the descent that he, ha- that he gave up from heaven to earth as a slave. Know that mind and mind Him. Obey Him as a result of it. That title is probably going to have a lot more in- uh, uh, weight to it when we go to the next section in verse 12. Uh, but keep that in mind, this idea of obedience we need to know his mind in order to obey him even death on the cross and this is a looking uh, this is a lifting up high even the death of the cross the cross was the most accursed take a look at what it says in Deuteronomy 21 about the cross and the law it says this if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed by God. Remember, this is a hymn. It's poetry. And so here we come to the very lowliest point of the song, of the hymn, of the poem. Even the abasement, the despicableness of the cross. We have traveled on a descent. I want you to see this next slide here. We've traveled down, downward, from verse 6 to verse 8. Notice the pattern in the poetry. Notice the pattern in the language. We are moving from heaven and we are coming down. And we are going so far down to verse 8 that we hit rock bottom. We hit the death of the cross. The humblest, the humblest of deaths. Now what's going to happen? We're going to rise back up. Because we don't leave Jesus on the cross. We don't leave our Lord and Savior at the bottom. Because that's not where He is today. So what happens in verse 9? The hymn begins to rise. Take a look at verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. The word therefore there is, uh, it has the idea, it's a different use of therefore and it has the idea of this is a logical consequence. This is a logical outcome of Jesus' humility on the cross. This is what logically God has done on account of Jesus' obedience to the cross. What has He logically done? Well, the scriptures say that the humble are exalted. That's a universal truth in the Word of God. The, the humble those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what, is ha- what happens to Jesus is a log- logical consequence. Therefore, in light of the, even the death of the cross, God also has highly exalted Jesus. And he's given Jesus the name which is above every name. This uh, idea of name here, this is kind of tricky. Uh, it could mean that he's given a, a, the position of dignity and honor. A, a great name. But not an actual name. That could be the connotation that that Jesus is given great exaltation, great praise, great dignity. Second, it could have the idea of a literal name that that Paul's not going to say what the name is. Like in Revelation, we see we see in Revelation 3 and Revelation 19, Jesus is given these names, and they're 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 hidden from us. Actually, they're names that are going to be revealed to us later. The the new name of Jesus, a new name that that even more greatly typifies his glory. That's the second option of what Paul means here. third option is that Paul's going to tell you what the name is. He's going to say that he's been given a brand new name, and I'm going to tell you what that name is. Tough to say which, which of these Paul means. I actually tend to think this last one here. I think Paul's actually going to tell you what that name is. Let's take a look. Verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the word of there, that at the name of Jesus, you say, well, gee, there's a, there's a unique name Paul gives them. Well, that's not the name. You see, the, the of there means belonging to, or possessed by, or the name that Jesus has. So we could translate it as saying that God, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name belonging to Jesus, he still hasn't said it yet. Notice every knee should bow at the name belonging to Jesus. Every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess. Here's the name, in my opinion, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Why would it be Lord? The word Lord, Greek word kurios, was used by the Greeks as a substitute for the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. The word Lord in Greek, kurios, was used as a substitute for as the Greek equivalent of the word Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament. And so when Paul says that the Father gave Jesus a new name, or a name that is above every name, rather, that at the name uh, belonging to Jesus, that every knee should bow, every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is, here's the name, Lord. He is, He epitomizes Lord, the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament name for God. Jesus, by His descent to earth, by His abasement on the cross, and now in His exaltation, the name that He has been given is Lord. And it's interesting, Paul uses this word only twice prior to this, and he's going to use the word Lord a ton of times right after this in this epistle. So now all of a sudden he's made this claim that Jesus is Lord, and that that name now is going to be used quite repeatedly in the letter to the Philippians. Much like Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Lastly, notice this. The cosmos, the world, bows to Jesus and confesses, rather should. Uh, We see here those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Uh, I don't want to make much of under the earth. Some might say it's the sea. Others might say it's just a threefold way of saying all of the cosmos. And I think that's probably what's in mind here. The entire cosmos, the entire universe should bow. To Jesus, the entire universe should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This looks at Romans fourteen eleven, where it says Jesus, excuse me, Paul says, quoting the Lord, he says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. It will happen. It will happen. And finally, to the glory of God. To the glory of God the Father. What what does this mean, ladies and gentlemen? This brings this message full circle. We are not talking here, as I stated from verse six, we are not talking about Jesus trying to somehow not show up the Father. That's not what we're talking about in this passage. Jesus is not concerned with trying not to, you know, be equal with the Father, and that would, you know, cause the Father shame or would detract from the Father's glory. That's not the case in this passage. In fact, Paul's not even speaking of that. Paul's speaking about the nature of God. It is who God is not to be hoarding, not to be taking, but to be giving. That is the nature of God. And he brings it to full circle in verse 11 where he says, All of this is done. The bowing to Jesus, the confessing to Jesus, all of this is done for the glory of the Father. All of this is done for the glory of the Father. The Son's exaltation by the Father returns glory to the Father. The Father takes pleasure in watching His creation worship the Son. Let me say that again. The Father takes pleasure in watching His creation worship the Son. For in so doing, they are worshiping the Father. It brings Him glory. What can we learn? Let's finish up. A uh, few things here, and again, this may have seemed very this may have seemed very doctrinal. and it's unfortunate that it may have seemed that way because we had to, we had to grapple with it. We had to interpret it. But ladies and gentlemen, do not forget that this is an illustration. This is not Paul's Christology, his, his great doctrine on Jesus Christ. This is Paul saying, this is the example you are to follow the example of Jesus who descended. The first is this. The first application, know this. Philippians 2.6-11 is Paul's chief illustration of the kind of humility we are to attain as a Christian community. It is therefore more a call to action than a discourse of doctrine. That's important. Secondly, it is within the very nature of God to give and not to hoard. That was critical as, as you listened today. It is within the nature of God to give and not to hoard. And that is, I believe, Paul's primary point in verse 6. 3. Scripture is replete. That means filled, consumed with the notion that the humble will be exalted. If we humble ourselves like Christ, it's a logical consequence that we will be exalted. It's logical. And 4. As you today have heard the words of Scripture... As you've witnessed Jesus' humility, as you've seen this illustration of humility and subsequent exaltation, here's the question. Will you exert humility today in this church? Will you exert humility in your home, in your marriage, in your workplace? Friends, we read Philippians 2, 6-11 to as an example to follow. Let's follow it. Let's be humble toward one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you, Your Word is, is, is powerful, Father. In it we find illustrations that are timeless, that do not fade away. Illustrations that are not constrained by culture. We see the example, the chief example of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who had the very mind the very mindset, the very way of thinking that we are striving for today. I pray for each individual and family in this room, in this sanctuary today, Father, that you would humble ourselves. You would help us to be humble in view of the humility of Christ. He is our example. and He is the very reason that we are to show humility in our...